Welcome to another edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live right here on Giants.com. I'm John Schmelk. He's Jeff Fiegels, and the phone number for you is 201-939-4513. Or you could go to Twitter at hashtag GiantsChat. We're actually not going to take your phone calls today. We've told you about this show for the last week or so. Uh, we're going to be joined by one of Pro Football Focus's uh, analysts, uh, one of their analytic gurus and we'll be taking uh doing an interview with them over the course of the show informing you guys as to exactly what the analytic side of their operation is how they do it and we're going to try to learn a little bit and uh, bring all that into focus but if you want to send your questions to hashtag giants chat over the course of the show i might pose some of those to our guest as we go along jeff how are you doing good johnny you're good you know our new thursdays are fridays so that is true no, by the way, folks, I'll remind you, no show tomorrow, and then we're off all next week. So we're not going to see you uh, until Sayonara. the following Monday. I believe that's July 9th, if I'm not mistaken. And that's when we're going to speak next. So without further ado, let's go to our guest from Pro Football Focused, um, their analytics guy, one of their many analytics guy, George Sharuri, and he joins us right now on Big Blue Kickoff Live. George, I was practicing your name as someone with the last <laughs> name Schmelk that always gets it butchered. George Sharuri, did I get that correct? You know, I'm going to give you uh, I'm going to give you a passing grade there. I'm okay, give you about a seven out of ten. Okay, you didn't, you didn't destroy it, so that's a good thing. Sharuri, okay. <laughs> what is the correct way to Pretty say good. George? So, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I am still not as – my dad is really the only person in our family that says it perfectly. Uh Um, He was the only guy that was actually born in Lebanon. So, I I was born in the States, but my best effort is Shahrui. Shahrui. Okay. There you go. That's not okay. I can do that. But I'm going to stick with George for the next 60 minutes if you're okay with that. (laughs) Shakruri and Sharuri. Okay. George, all right, right, here we go, George. Let's start with the basics here. Um, And, again, I just want to make clear to the fans, we're not talking about their player grading and things like that. This is the numbers inside what's important in football type of angles we're going to be taking on today's show. So, George, let's let's keep this simple and start real basic on offense. How do you guys determine – if a play is a success and to what level it's a success or a failure, and let's kind of build from there. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. Um, One of the things that we use quite often is something called expected points. Uh, This is something that uh, if you've ever read the the book Hidden Game of Football, something that they came up with. And basically what it aims to do is say, given your down distance and your field position, mathematically, what should I expect to score on the next scoring play? And so you can imagine if your expected points is positive, you expect to score next. And if your expected points are negative, you expect the defense to score next. You can imagine if you're backed up, for example, at your you know, own five-yard line or something like that. Um, and the great thing about this is that it allows us then on the subsequent play to recalculate the expected points. And so if that play was a success, then I've increased – my expected point scoring on the next play. In other words, my probability of scoring next. Um, and if I've you know, failed on that play, well, then I've decreased it. And so uh, one of the ways that we measure success is saying, you know, what's your EPA or your expected points added on a certain type of play okay. or certain situations in a game? Interesting. So let me start here then. Obviously, you start at first and ten. Second and ten is is obviously worse than first and ten. That's obvious. At what point is 
second and what yardage a better situation than first and ten? Is it second and seven? Is it second and six? What's that line of demarcation there for what a successful yards gained on first down would be to add an expected points value to where the team is? That's a good question. So um, what, the one thing that I'll mention is a little bit of context here sure. to, to, to understand EPA is that what it does is it puts those in context, right? So a five-yard gain on third and 10 is going to be weighed much differently than a five-yard gain on, say, third and four. So if we're on mm-hmm. second and five, let's say – now, why don't you pick a yard, a yard line that you want to be at? What's your favorite yard line? Oh, let's say it's a touchback off a kickoff. So let's say the 25. Okay, cool. So if we're at second and five, for example – um, I'm going to calculate this right now in the moment for you. You're lucky. Um, <laughs> no, don't 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 ask us to do any math math <laughs> equations here. I'll I'll try I'll try not to. Okay. Um, yeah. So if we're at second and five from the 25 here, go. Our EPA will be about I'll say about 1.7. Mm-hmm. What I'm getting right here. Um, so first and ten. Uh, so you've got second and five, you're about the same as first and ten. Um, I'll, I'll have to make sure that's correct. I've got to check one thing. But that's, that would be my guess. That's second and five is about the same as first and ten. Okay, interesting. Because I think most, From that yard line, though. Right, correct. So I, because I think most yeah, fans yeah. would think if you rush for four yards on first down and you're looking at second and six, you're in a much, be- much better spot than you were at first and ten. But based on um, you know the odds and, and calculations and, and everything you guys have – in your formula, that might not necessarily be the case. Yeah, no, it's interesting because it fluctuates from first, you know, one of the important factors in this thing is actually season to season. Things change, right? Hmm. Because not every season is, is created equally. And so that's an, uh, actually a feature in our model that we use. And we see little fluctuations in terms of where expected points are on, at various field positions, depending on what season you're in. And then, of course, um, you know, there's just some seasons are a little irregular. So um, that also matters. Uh, and then, of course, the yard line that you're at also plays a role in it. Does weather ever play a role in any of this stuff? You know, late games, so this, early games, um, night games, outdoor, indoor. Or even strengths of both teams on the field, things right. like that. Yeah. Yeah, so that we bring that in. The, the expected points is basically a very basic layer of everything, okay. right? It aims to sort of even everything out. And then what we add on top of it is exactly what you're talking about, right? So let's say I'm trying to compute win probability in the game. There I want to take into account, you know, who's playing in the game, who's the quarterback, how good is the defense that he's facing, um, you know, what's the score of the game, all these different things. And there I might take into account, uh, you know, if it's an incredibly windy game or something like that. We want to be careful not to take into account things that are, really sparse data-wise yeah. um, because, you know, our, our goal is sort of to, you know, not – we want to not worry as much about the outliers as we do kind of the big chunk of things. Sure. Um, but certainly, look, strength of, strength of players on the field is a huge determinant of, you know, all the things that we're trying to predict. So expected points adds a layer uh, to all of that, and we can sort of use it in general terms. And then when we try and – become more predictive in our analysis, that's where we add in the the team facet strength. You know, George, and I think you bring up a really good point because I feel like, and frankly, I think it does the analytics guys a disservice sometimes when you hear people say, well, it doesn't matter 
who's playing, if you're between the 40s and it's fourth down, you should always go for it no matter what. And and I think the context that you just placed on it is important. And I think why some fans don't get it and they get confused is that they hear these blanket statements. But I think for some teams, if it's fourth and five at the 50-yard line, going for it is certainly the right move depending on who the opponent is and the score. But for another team, you know, fourth and seven at the 50 might not be a great idea to go for it here because of the strengths of the teams, how the game's going, you know, how their third down defense is, the third down offenses, etc. And, and I think that it's important, and I think you made the great point, that people understand that it's not a blanket universal statement, these numbers. They are affected by the players on the field and the strengths of the teams uh, that you're almost putting into these formulas, correct? Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. One of the things that we're really curious about is how can we analyze decision-making? Because I think that's a huge, um, you know, a huge place where teams can gain a big advantage it's from making, you know, maybe non-conventional decisions that turn out to be really logical decisions. If you right. look at the at the numbers, you know, and going for it on fourth down is the the ultimate case of that, right? But you'll notice, and we've looked at this a little bit, is if we just take a look at decisions, let's say between kicking a field goal and and going for it, you know, in situations where you're within field goal range, um, the teams that tend to do it the least have the worst offenses. Mm-hmm. The ones that stick out to you are the teams that you know maybe have an above-average offense or maybe even a top-of-the-league offense, yet are continually choosing to score three points instead of giving themselves an opportunity to score, uh, you know, seven. And one of, one of my favorite things to tell people is, you know, three plus three is still less than seven. You, know, you can get two field goals, and that's still not worth a touchdown. And the idea that you know kicking a field goal is great because you put points on the board isn't always the case because, you know, say you were to turn the ball over on downs, that field position might actually be, you know, better off for your defense going out there. And so all those things are taken into the equation, you know, as well as, of course, how good the teams are. Um, You know, if you're a good offensive team, the probability swings in your favor more so, obviously. Here's another question. Uh, Just to stick with the whole field goal touchdown decision would you guys when you're talking about decision making whether it's the correct decision for let's say team x Mm -hmm. would you also take in consideration the strength of team x's defense and 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 and, and punter for that you know if you know if it's punter go for it too whatever the you know difference might be and do you take that into consideration on how that impacts field position and exactly um if you go for it and don't make it how likely is their defense to step in and get the stop and, you know, nullify whatever possible disadvantage the offense might have of not making that, you know, theoretical fourth down? Well, I'll start with the special teams component because that is, that is a huge factor, and I think it's something that's lost. You know, it gets mentioned all the time, I feel like, in the sort of intangible section of the pregame show. <laughs> Watch out for this team. They've got... You know, they've got great Not our pregame teams. show. <laughs> Not our pregame <laughs> show, George. We talk about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff well, makes and, us. And the thing is, we want, to, we want to incorporate that in the most holistic way possible. So the nice thing about PFF is that we, you know, we grade every player on every play, and that includes you know, the guys on the special teams coverage unit. And, and so when we, we bake all of those things into the calculation, and so – you know, when we talk about, you know, say, for example, punting or going for it, when we try and predict the outcome of a punt, we are using 
all the metrics that you would use for a punter. We're using all the the different aggregated opponent-adjusted grading for each of the coverage players, and we found that to be incredibly useful. It's it's very successful, actually, adding a special teams component has helped us predict uh, over-unders and totals for games um, much better than we would be without it. So that, that's a huge component of the, of the scenario. And then, um, you know, to, to kind of speak to the whole strength of, of the team standpoint, if I'm, you know, if I'm considering, let's say I'm an offensive team and I'm facing Tom Brady, that right. should come into my calculus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something, you know, for example, the Jaguars, in that, uh, in that championship game, you know, deciding to kneel the ball there at the end of the first half, Mm-mm. up four points, up four points against Tom Brady on the road, at least in my mind, is, is basically nothing. You're basically still down at that point, and, and the <laughs> spread and our win probability would say the same thing. Um, but it's, So that, that has to come into the calculus of it because you know, ultimately you've got to beat your opponent, right? And so you've got to take them, all of them into consideration. Well, then we'll get off this subject real quickly. I know we have a lot more to ask you about. But if you look at a team like the Rams, okay, Johnny Heckert is by hands down the best punter in the NFL, but they also have a prolific offense. So I would imagine that sometimes in your analytics you've got to sit there and say, okay, well, you know, it all comes down to who we're playing because if I'm the Rams and I have Johnny Heckert, who I know could put the ball inside the 5, 10-yard lines every single time. However, I have an offense that can go down and score, and I also have a guy by the, uh, Zerline who can kick a field goal. Yeah. So that makes it very difficult for a team like that, but it is, to me it all depends on who you're playing and where the analytics come in at that point, right? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. And so, uh, this would be a question that I would actually ask you guys from the team standpoint. Do you think that the kicker is actually a bigger determinant of going for it on fourth down maybe in some of those areas than uh, at least maybe that we would consider? It's a good question. I think Ooh. I think the field goal kicker is. Like for a team like the Cowboys and I think this is probably a, a team that probably bothers the analytics guy because I would imagine Jason Garrett probably kicks field goals a lot more than he should. Well, because he has a guy like Right. Him. And but I think a guy like Dan Bailey probably says, "Well, look, I'm guaranteeing myself, you know, theoretic, you know, most accurate kicker in NFL history. I'm quote-unquote guaranteeing myself three points here. I'll take it." But for a situation, let's say for the Giants last year, who had a first-year kicker in Alger Grossos, who was a little inconsistent, they might be less likely to go kick that field goal. You know what I mean? Because they're going to give up that field yeah. position because most likely he's a 72% field goal kicker opposed to a 90, right? So, and again, it all depends on who's your – and you know what? I remember – I played a long time in the NFL, and I played on a lot of crappy teams. <laughs> but I played – the reason I, I, I lasted so long in the league for playing for crappy teams is because teams that have really bad offenses need a good punter <laughs> and a good defense. And so, yeah. that's, so that makes sense when it comes to that. So <laughs> with John's scenario there, if I'm the Giants, i got to know that I'm going to have to play some defense here if we're going to go for a field goal and miss it. Um, I guess it depends on which, which, where you have more faith in your offense or your defense going into that type of situation. So we can move on from that. Sorry, sorry to get no, into special team okay. stuff so much. There. That, that's why you're here. Hey, um, you know, it's, it's a great topic. And, and you, uh, you, know, you played on a couple of good teams too. Don't give yourself Oh, no, I absolutely did. Traffic. That 07 team was pretty darn good. <laughs> and a couple of those no Eagles teams are really no. good too, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a couple of if we could just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the ninety our ninety two team. That was if Randall you go back Cunningham look, at his peak, right? Pretty de- much. I think it was the ninety one or ninety two team, yeah. George, that was number one across the board defensively against the run pass and overall wow. defense. 
I remember that it's distinctly. I don't know how many times that's happened. That was Buddy history. Ryan still, right? Yeah, but yeah. that was they were at the end of the year. They were number one across the board defensively. I just our offense couldn't do anything. All right, George. Before I start digging into a lot of some of the specifics on offense and defense here, just a, a larger holistic question for these types of. Um, expected points added calculations. Is this something that if a team wanted to, heading into a game, they could build a formula and have a coach in the booth run these sort of scenarios um, real time so they have some additional data that would help assist the coach and make these decisions, which sometimes have to be made within 15, 20, 25 seconds, depending on what the situation of the game is? I think they do that already. I really do. Well, yeah, I'm looking at, I'm checking the year here. It's 2018, and uh, you would think this would be this would be automatic, right? I mean, um, you've got you know five year old kids using phones all over the place. But um, to my understanding, you can't have that live technology in in the booth. Um, so what you have to do is actually kind of role play before the game. So you have to kind of go into it with. Um, you know, here are sort of the parameters for where right. I would consider going for it, um, which is a little disheartening because of, you know, this is a, a league that generates, you know, all this money. It's, you know, kind of the pinnacle of, of success in a lot of ways. And we're not leveraging maybe, you know, the world's greatest, uh, you know, sort of continuing achievement, which is all the, you know, computing power and technology that we have. I will tell you this, we, um, you know, on our own side of things have, built um, a decision-making app that we can use in real time. So while the coaches might not be using it in real time, um, I, I can use it in real time and I can make, <laughs> you know, as basically calls on whether to go for it or not, um, you know, within about 10 seconds of a, of do you, a play. Do, you, do know, you actually do that and just play around with it and see how accurate it is? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I did that. We, we got it built um, – Right before the the Super Bowl last year, and so that was a fun thing to oh, sure. to use during the Super Bowl because I mean we all know that 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 game really came down to you know maybe three huge decisions on fourth down. I, out of curiosity, did you guys, based on your formulas and and the math you guys did, did Peterson make the right calls in those spots, being super aggressive, or right. did you think he maybe should have been more conservative? You know, it wasn't even it, it wasn't even close. I mean, the, the <laughs> right call in both it. situations yeah. Yeah. was so overwhelming. And you know, it's funny going back. You know, so to start with the Philly special, there. Um, you know, they're at the one yard line. You're you're the Eagles. You have probably the best offense, top to bottom. Now I know you're missing your quarterback, but you've got a great offensive line. You have great skill position players, uh, and you had two weeks to prepare. So not even taking into account the fact that you've got this trick play that you feel great about, you know, you've got to have confidence to, to gain one yard. And mm -hmm. so, you know, our, our, our probability of them picking up the one yard was in their favor. And then the win probability considering, you know, if you go for it versus if you kick overwhelmingly stated that they should have gone for it. Um, it, it was about a net of 11 uh, probability win probability points going for it. So, uh, that one was was a no brainer, and then the one in the, in the fourth quarter was interesting. Uh, you know, watching the game, I noticed when the the Patriots stopped them on that third down, there were a couple players I can't remember who, and I won't name them, but that sort of started celebrating. And from my vantage point, I was I was like, wow, you, should, you better stop. It's fourth and one. They have to go for this. And uh, you know, when you think about it, and you kind of break it down, were they to punt in that situation? 
Yeah, their defense still tired. Brady hasn't been stopped ever in this game. Uh, and all you're really making Tom Brady do is take more time off the clock to right. probably eventually score. So, you know, if you punt it there, the game is over. If you turn it over there, the game is over. It's the same It's the same situation where you punt or turn it you're over. The ball and again, it's one yeah. yard. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, That's George, awesome. Yeah, that, that is awesome. Um, <laughs> another more of a bigger picture thing, I think it's going back to my second question. How much... And, and this is even putting expected points aside. This is more just a percent chance of conversion. I guess it depends team to team. But in general, across the league, how much more likely is a team, say, likely to convert a third and eight or third and nine versus a third and two or in third and three? Because I think from the team side, the impression is you're looking at a you know probably a good 20, 30% difference in terms of ability to convert those two downs. How quickly is it exponential? Is it linear? Does your percent of uh, con- chance of converting go from as you go from third and 10 down to third and one? That's a great question. Um, I would, you know, not having that exactly in front of me, I would guess that it's probably a, you know, 25 plus percent difference. Okay. Um, and that depends obviously on, on the quarterback, I think a great deal, but um, you know, converting a third and eight, I mean, you, you know, that's, <laughs> you go into a third and eight, you feel horrible, right? <laughs> you go into a third and two, you've at least got, you've got the whole playbook at your disposal. I right, think right. that's a huge key as well. Um, you know, you look at a team like the Cowboys were sort of an outlier, but a great example of this last year where, you know, whether it be because of Zeke or because their offensive line sort of fell apart at the same time that he went out, they had this issue where their third downs just started getting longer and longer. And you put Dak in more situations where the playbook got smaller and smaller and smaller. And, you know, that was a big issue for them from 16 to 17. Just their ability to convert those third downs went down. Oh, back. If you look at 16, their third downs were third and one, third oh, and yeah. two. Uh, they, you know, the first down. Then the second down, they get another first down. That running game, which I'm sure John's going to ask you a couple questions about the running game, because That's next. really when <laughs> the analytics come out about the running game and situations, this is where you start to think about your offense and how the run, how the passing game. Everybody's, you know, it's a passing league, but I don't know. The NFC East is starting to look a little bit like the old NFC East, in my opinion. The running game is starting to come back, and I'm going to see it this year. You look at the running backs that are going to be in this division. A lot of high draft picks this year. All yeah. high draft picks. You have guys. Guy, um, guys, right yep, down into Washington. You got Saquon Barkley. Uh, you got um, Zeke and Ajayi from and the Philly. There you go. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the running game, and John will tee up with these questions. He's got a, a book written about over here. Now, so. yeah, Juicy George, and I think here's the thing: we had a conversation going into the draft, multiple with with a million different people. Value of the running back. So let's start first here. More important to a successful running game: good offensive line, good running back. Or is it a 50-50 split? Yeah, I mean that's that's the question right that's there hard. because if if it's your if it's your running back and he's the determinant of the running game, I think he gets a little bit more value. And what we've seen from a play-by-play predictive standpoint, you know, what I mean by that is trying to predict yards per carry on a play-by-play basis. Right. The performance of the run blocking unit, the offensive line and run blocking, is more predictive of your run success than the, the performance of your running back. And, and the, thing, the reason we're able to do that is, look, we've got, you know, we're grading, you know, these players on a play-by-play basis. And, you know, while some people might disagree with, you know, every one-off grade here or there, 
and these get checked by the pro coaches network over and over again. And so you know, we feel pretty confident and they test out mathematically to be pretty darn good as far as projecting to wins and being stable season to season. So we feel pretty confident in the way that we are grading the run blocking game mm-hmm. and the fact that it then shows up to be more predictive of run success than the running back okay. really sort of it makes you think a little bit because I think that the, the sort of hidden component to that is, well, if the run blocking game is so important to running and I improve running my back. offensive line, uh, but I'm also improving my pass blocking probably too. If I'm putting better, of you know, offensive linemen in there, and we know that that can have a huge impact as well. Well, George, how how much more predictive is it? Like, let's say for example, and I know you guys don't have pro numbers on. How about this? You mentioned the Cowboys before. How much of a difference for them was going from Ezekiel Elliott to Alfred Morris? Uh, was it a huge drop off or? Did the offensive line play poorly, too, because Tyron Smith wasn't there? I think that might be a good example to show uh, the impact of a downgraded running back skill, which no one would argue Elliott to Morris is a downgrade, but you still have a pretty good offensive line. So uh, what's the difference there? I mean, like, uh, how how much uh, lack of predictive power does the quality of the running back have? You know, it, the, the, so to answer your first question, it's uh, not an entire order of magnitude. It's not like two times more important, okay. but it's a good one and a half times more more important. And that's you know on a in a on a play type that is just less valuable to begin with, too, right? Um, but you know, I mean, you think about before Zeke Elliott showed up, like Darren McFadden was pretty darn good behind that offensive line, and so right? was Demarco um, Murray, yeah. So you know, I, I think really the the value that running backs, and I think this will speak to probably what you guys have been talking about for a while here, is, is what Saquon Barkley brings, which is the value of the running back position is now coming from their ability to be a receiver. Um, and I think you know, if you, whether you look at Alvin Kamara, who, according to our numbers and in terms of wins above replacement, was the most valuable running back season uh, that we've seen since 2014, um, you know, or you look at Todd Gurley, who – you know, with Jeff Fisher was averaging 4.1 yards per screen target, and then one year later with Sean McVay is averaging 15.1 yards per screen target. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the gains that these guys are making, Todd Gurley didn't all of a sudden become a, you know, a way better athlete yeah. in one year, right? Um, so much of this, and you know, Sean, uh, Sean Payton, maybe it's a thing with Sean, but Sean Payton is a tremendous you know, play caller, tremendous play designer as well. And so you know, if you get a running back who you can put in space, all of a sudden their value is translated to the receiving side of things where there's just more value to be had to begin with. Well, I think that you are correct in the sense that we have talked about Saquon Barkley and not only his running ability and the way he can, he can, you know, he can run the football, but really a good asset that he's going to give this team is that is and, and with Sherman running it up in, in Minnesota with throwing the ball to him in the backfield, going to have a lot of great plays. We, we are excited about that. And I'll tell you what, a lot of the fans are um, – you know they're they're just they're chomping at the bit for the season to start. And John and I were talking the other day. Are we gonna you know are they just gonna run him into the ground? We hope that he you know they kind of ease him these things into him. But um, you look at someone like the Saints. Okay, so that from that running back position, you 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 meant um, uh, a quad, um, help me with his name. I'm sorry, the running back for Kamara. the Saints, Kamara. That guy comes out of nowhere. I mean, obviously they knew what he could do, but I mean that type of offense that Sean Payton puts together with him is that something you see that the Giants would be able to do with Saquon Barkley? Well, that's a that's a great question, right? Because Alvin Kamara was a third round pick, right? right? It wasn't he came out of nowhere, 
Did he come out of nowhere because people, you know, just totally slept on his athletic ability? Maybe a little bit, but scheme is such an important component of that. And the Saints have so many other weapons, right? You're worried about Drew Brees. You're worried about Michael Thomas was the most valuable wide receiver, in, uh, according to PFF War last season. So you get kind of all those different weapons, and you then add one more guy, and you're able to put him in space. You know, a guy like Alvin Kamara, who's a third-round pick, can have tremendous success. Now, can Saquon Barkley have that same success? He's certainly, you sure. know, Saquon Barkley might be the best athlete we've ever seen. I mean, I can't, the guy is incredible, right? Right. But um, it's all about putting him in a position because, you know, the, the running back is at a disadvantage. It's, it's not like a bash on running backs that running the ball is less advantageous to the offense. The running back gets the ball five yards behind the line of scrimmage. Right? There's a huge difference yeah. between that and a receiver who's targeted, you know, eight, ten yards downfield. You know, so there's no – and in the passing game, it's sort of the same, right? The running back is not targeted that far downfield. A lot of the times their most impressive plays are breaking a tackle, you know, at or behind the line of scrimmage. They may gain three yards, and it's an impressive play, right? Whereas a run-of-the-mill passing play gets you seven yards. Um, so, you know, I think it really comes down to, you know, how good is their, their passing game around him. Is Odell Beckham healthy? Is Eli Manning able to make teams pay, you know, if they try and kind of attack Saquon Barkley, and that'll open up space for him. Yeah, these and Evan Ingram, too, throw him in there. That's that's kind of where I was going with, like, I look at the Saints and how powerful they are on offense. I'm trying to compare, you know, what the Giants could be on paper this yeah. year coming into it with someone like Saquon Barkley. You know, George, and I, I want to go back to two things you said before, and this is a target I wanted to hit next, where running plays by their nature – um, are less valuable than passing plays and, and less important. But at the same time, about 10 minutes ago, you talked about how a third and two or a third and three is much easier to convert than, say, a third and eight. So I, I guess how do you square those two things? I think most people think, well, you're running on first and second down, you average four yards a carry, you're looking at third and three. If you throw a couple of incomplete passes, you're you know staring at third and ten. And obviously third and three is a much easier down to convert on than a, a third and ten or a third and eight or something like that. So uh, how do you guys square those two things with the fact that passing plays have such a higher inherent value than a running play? Yeah, that's a good question. So the first thing I would say is if you're playing for third down, you're going to lose football games. <laughs> oh, um, that's a good point. A good no, point. I, yeah, I the, agree the, with you there. Yeah, absolutely. The, the team's the team that, that had the highest rate of first downs on first and second down was the Patriots. The second were the Saints. So, you know, I, I think that is a huge component to things. If your goal is to get into third and manageable, you're going to march down the field and you'll have three successful series and you'll still be at the, you know, at the 40-yard line, right? Um, so you've got to be able to sort of, I think, think ahead of that um, to start with. And then, so, so I think that's the first thing. Getting into third and short is still not necessarily great. Um, and I think running on second and long is actually one of the big, big issues that we see from sort of a decision-making standpoint. While runs are a, a negative EPA play, and what I mean by that is on average, a running play is hurting your chances of scoring on that drive. Running in certain situations is worse than it is in, in other situations. So what maybe a run on third and one isn't, isn't that terrible. But if you run on second and ten or something like that, it becomes far more negative. Um, and so I think it really comes down to picking your, picking your spots before you get to third down, right, and actually making sure that you're taking advantage of 
you know, maybe, maybe it is that the defense really overplays the pass and you are able to pick up a nice chunk of six yards on first down. Um, but then it's your decision on second down to make sure that you're trying to pick up that, that first down before it. I, you know, I looked at this uh, just a couple of days ago was, you know, what is completion percentage like when you're targeting, you know, that, that line to gain at the sticks? Because we know that's a really important demarcation. It really impacts the value of a play sure. on passing plays, for example when you target sticks. And if you target that area by the sticks within three yards of the, of the sticks on first and second down, your completion percentage is almost five percentage points better than if you target that same area on third down. And that's even taking, you know, I'm not even taking into account the fact that first and second down generally are further away. So, yeah, but you, you also, um, you you also think, on third down, you only have one more left on first down. You know, you have two more plays to get to those sticks, right? Basically is what you're saying. And, and the defense knows that. Too, yeah, exactly. Right? They get a little more cushion. And, yep, yep. You so know the other I, thing too, George. About... I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Along with this too, on those situations of third and two, and what John was talking about, it also dictates when you're going into your game plan and about the defense and what some of their tendencies are on those downs. You know, are they good against third and two, and they're horrible against third and eights? So that's going to totally dictate what you're going to do, run or pass the football. No, you're totally right, and. So the first thing I would say is, look, if I, if, if I want to make sure that if I happen to be in a third down, it's at least the shortest third down I can be in, well, then you better be passing the ball at some point, right? Um, because passing is just, it, it's going to, on average, get you closer to the line to gain. But once you get into that third and short, let's, let's say, for example, it's third and two. You can trot out a heavy set. You know, maybe you have two wide receivers, two tight ends out there. And the defense all of a sudden brings on their three linebackers who can't cover me. Okay, and now all of a sudden you've got you know you've got Evan Ingram running against the guy that's out there trying to stop the run. That's easy money. Yeah. And I think it's that's something that we've seen over and over again. Um, you know, it, I remember that Matt Ryan season in 2016 with with Kyle Shanahan. They absolutely obliterated teams. <laughs> From heavy sets. I mean, it was it was disgusting. I want to say his pass rating was something like 136. Yeah. Um, out of those heavy sets, I mean, it was it was really ridiculous. And if you look at it just on a league wide level, if you are throwing with two or less wide receivers, on average, you're facing one less defensive back, and your EPA is almost five times better. So you're adding almost five times more uh, to your expected point total than if you're throwing out of, you know, three-plus wide receiver sets. See, now, George, um, and I think so th- the ability... Go ahead, I'm going to finish up. My fault, I apologize. I was just going to say, the ability to have that multiplicity in your offense is huge. And so I think that's where, you know, being able to play against the defense and what their tendencies are is, is tremendous. Yeah, but George, doesn't that also then make it important to run the ball? Because if you don't have a threat to run, you're constantly going to be seeing... Sub package, nickel, dime. You're not going to get those linebackers on the field. So while running plays do have, on average, like you said, uh, a negative EPA and pass plays are going to be more valuable in general, don't teams have to make the defense believe they're going to run it and run it often to get those types of advantageous matchups you're talking about? Because as you just said, Defensive personnel has a huge, huge impact on whether or not a play is successful. But to get those matchup and personnel packages you want from a defense on the field as an offense, don't you have to make them believe that you can run the ball successfully? So isn't there kind of a balance you have to strike? It, you know, you would think, and I and it turns out that 
your success running the ball, your, the amount of times you run the ball, even if you look at it, um, you know, say on like the previous five plays or the previous ten plays, and there's a guy named Ben Baldwin who's who's done a lot of work on this front, and we've corroborated it every at every point. It doesn't actually impact your success passing, even if you look at play action passing, for example. Um, and I think the reason that is is that defenses. Are going are still in the mindset where we have to be prepared for the run. If it's a third and one, if it's a third and two, even if you're not a great running team, picking up two yards is still you know that's 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 not that impressive, right? And I think there's something to the the humiliation factor of getting run on that <laughs> keeps defenses. I, you know, I, I'm trying to think of you know sort of sociological reasons why this is the case. Sure. Because from my standpoint, it doesn't make sense to me. You know. I, from my defensive philosophy would be I am always assuming pass. I'm I'm not falling for any play action fake. If they pick up four yards on me in the run game, that's fine. But I'm gonna make sure that I'm never giving up that big pass play and then I'm getting guys who are athletic enough that Look, if it ends up being a run, they're going to be able to get to the boundary and stop it. So basically, you would play every team the way teams played the Giants <laughs> last year when they couldn't run the ball. <laughs> at all. Um, yep. So, well, one more. And teams are doing more of that. Teams are playing, you know, five yeah. defensive backs. Yeah, they're in nickel more on, often than they're not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this defense that uh, James Betcher, they're in nickel yeah. quite a bit sure on they second are. down. That's the way the game is played today. So I, I guess George, I think that's a a pretty good segue them to the passing game and. The way I've seen the league the last three or four years, to me, and I'd love to see if your numbers back this up, to me, big plays are essential. Uh, if you don't make big plays in this league as an offense, you're going to have trouble scoring a lot of points because, as you mentioned, sustaining drives is difficult and it's hard. Um, how much is success for offenses now predicated on the ability to convert big plays? Yeah, that's a great point, right? Um, and I think that's that's where scheme and offensive, you know, genius sort of on your side is a huge thing. Look at what happened to the Rams this past year. Yeah, um, and identify yeah, George a, a big ways. play to interrupt it so people know. Uh, play, a big yeah, play. plays 20, so, 20, 20, 20 plus more, yards through the twenty end, yards say, more. Yeah. So yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm glad we I'm glad we picked the same number. I, I was worried that I would have looked up like you know five yards off, but um, <laughs> there's a couple of ways that I looked at it. You know, if you gain you know, 20 plus yards at least once in a in a possession or in a drive, your touchdown percentage is about o over three times that of what it would be if you don't. One twenty, um, one just one a drive. Play. Wow, wow. Okay, I'm and, following. Uh, and there's a another. Yeah, so that's huge, right? Obviously, picking up big chunks is tremendously helpful. And then looking at it from you know the passing standpoint, because. Ultimately, if you're talking about 20-yard gains and you know, you're going to be relying on, on the pass to pick up the majority of those, when we look at from a quarterback standpoint, when they make what we call a big-time throw, and these are throws that are just special throws, they earn our highest level of grade, it's about 5% or so of throws, if you have one of those on a drive, you're, uh, it's actually more indicative of a, of a touchdown. It's about 39% wow. um, of those drives end up with a touchdown. So you're, you're right on, right? You want to have a quarterback. It is a valuable thing, obviously, to hit the expected throw, right, to hit the guy that's open. That's something that's valuable and consistent. But there is an extra level of value to have a guy who can make you know, the special throw down the field. And, and that goes into air yards, right? So I guess the quarterback that makes more throws with the ball in the air 20-plus yards is going to be a lot more valuable to an offense than the guy that can hit the 8-yard slant and then the wide receiver does all the work, right? 
Right. I mean, look, targeting, um, you know, I like to think of it as sort of the line to gain, right, as a good barometer for where guys are, are continually throwing the ball. Yeah. If there's about, uh, you know, it's about three times more valuable to throw the ball to a guy that's been two yards of the line to gain compared to three yards or more short. Um, so, I mean, just that ability to push the ball closer and closer to the boundary is tremendously valuable. And, um, you know, I think that's why you see a guy like Tom Brady, you know, he is, he is one of the leaders year in, year out over the past four years at percentage of throws out or past the sticks. And he does that. What's sort of incredible about Tom Brady is we, we do a ball location charting where we look at sort of when does a guy throw to his second or third look. And Tom Brady is continually the leader in throwing out or past the sticks on his second look. So even if he doesn't find his primary guy, right, when he looks to his second guy, he's still pushing the ball down the field. And you know, first downs are so valuable. If you can pick those up quickly as opposed to grinding it out, you're just going to be that much more successful. Are you guys at all able to calculate the impact of a quarterback's pre-snap reads, adjustments, and things like that, or is still something, or is that still something you guys are trying to figure out? Yeah, that's a great that's a great thing that you know we get asked that a good bit. Um, you know, my boss Chris Collinsworth, that's something that he's really interested in, and we looked at some stuff with motion, uh, you know, last year for some of the NBC broadcasts, and I think it's something that is is it's not something that we're doing a tremendously great job of capturing explicitly. I think it's an implicit thing, right? A guy that is noticing the blitz, right, is going to do better against the blitz after the blitz comes, right? A guy that is like Tom Brady identifying the weakness, he's prepared, he knows which guy on defense can't cover his, his, uh, you know, his running back out of the backfield or when he motions him into the slot, he's going to get that coverage. I think that shows up. Um, in you know the grading of the the quarterback and in just the overall offensive efficiency you know that that team has expected points added per play yeah um, so I think it is baked in but certainly you know that that is a really interesting uh, you know component and one that I think we can always get better at at you know figuring out in general from a scheme perspective and you could talk both offense and defense here have you guys been able to figure out metrics where you know one type of scheme is more effective than another it, overall or in a specific um, thing you're trying to accomplish, you know, even run scheme, zone, zone blocking scheme, man blocking schemes. Are you guys able to, to get it to that type of level where you can judge success based on scheme or is it really dependent on the players and the scheme is immaterial? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we have done more work, certainly with the passing game than the running game, as you may have have uh, induced by the induced <laughs> by what I've been talking about. Yep. Um, but you know, from a mathematical standpoint, so this is a question we get all the time, right? It's like, okay, if this team comes out in twelve personnel and they've got you know an imbalanced line, and the defense has this personnel out, like, what's you know, what's my success rate? And from a predictive standpoint, it's it's really hard to say anything with certainty because the sample size is so small and the difference in player, you know, you'd have to, you want to adjust for obviously the, the skill of the players on the field. And by that point you've whittled things down to where it's, it's harder to say something. So I think there is, I think that certainly plays a role um, from a mathematical standpoint, how well can we, you know, really characterize it? I think not that, not that well yet. Um, and I think what I would lean towards is what you said, is that 
look, if I put good football players on the field and I have a, the ability to adjust you know, my defense or my offense based on what I see, that's what's going to give me the biggest advantage. You know, I, I continually think about what the Patriots do, both offensively and defensively. They're a new team every time they step out there, and that is a huge advantage. George, I think the buzzword last year, the word of the year, was RPO. I mean, we heard RPO, RPO, <laughs> RPO. So I know you guys have probably done some studies on RPO versus the conventional offense, this and that. Talk a little bit about, have you found that you know teams that are using the RPO are more successful on certain downs or not successful on certain downs? Give me a little insight on this RPO, the run-pass option. Yeah, it's interesting. That was a huge buzzword, right? I mean, it was it was all over the place with the Eagles going pretty far, and it turns out so. You know, run pass option. I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding of what it is. Oh yeah. Maybe it's just the way that the name is phrased, <laughs> right? But if you break it down, you know, it's a run with a pass option. I think they need like one more word in there. They right? Need a hyphen um, in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so the idea being that it's a run play, and that means that the offensive line is run blocking. And the quarterback has the option to then pass the ball, you know, because the receivers are actually running routes. Um, so it is a run play by nature. And the thing that I think continually trip people up is that the Eagles ran, along with the Chiefs, ran the most play action out of a shotgun formation, which often sort of looks like an RPO. And right. I don't think it is as, as much as it as you would think. So the, the Chiefs, for example, ran RPOs on 17% of their plays last year, and that was the highest in the league. The Eagles were at about 15%. And, uh, you know, they did, though, they, they, they were pretty successful on them. The majority of those, if you look at the Chiefs, for example, the majority of those are runs. They're actually running more um, out of the run-pass option than they're passing. And I think most people want to hear, okay, well, what's the passing success out of the RPO? Because that's what everyone cares yeah, about. Yeah. Um, and and it's just it's something that I think it's uh, you know it's a small component that can add obviously some efficiency if you do it well, um, but it isn't something that I would say is necessarily changing the game. I think they've been around for a while, and maybe because of the Eagles' success, people have started trying to talk about it a little bit more. Um, if we look at, for example, um, you know expected or you know yards per attempt, for example, on on run pass options. Um, it's it's less than if you not if you don't run a run pass option. Of course, there's field position in different situations where you where you will run it. But um, overall, it hasn't been a, like a huge sort of game breaking thing that we've seen. The Eagles were successful on it last year, but it wasn't something that they just torched teams with you know with regularity. We're joined by George Shahrui from Pro Football Focus or analytics guy. Um, George, um, when you take a look at the defense and you're trying to build a good defense, is it more important to have a great pass rush, or is it more important to have great cover guys on the back end? Oh, man. You're, you're asking me all the questions here. This is great. <laughs> um, this, might, this might be a more, a touch, more touchy subject than the, than the run versus pass yeah. thing, because I think we can, at least, we can at least all agree, right, that you're still going to run the ball a little bit, and when you do so, you want to be good at it, right? Sure. But then when you get into this whole pass rush versus coverage thing, there's you know, which one depends more on the other and, you know, all these different things that get baked into it. So we, we tried to attack it really from sort of the simplest way, you know, that we possibly can, which is to say, okay, if I just want to predict, for example, how many wins a team is going to have in a season, which one is going to do better? Uh, you know, the, the success of the coverage unit or the success of the pass rush unit. 
And we found that it, that coverage is three times more predictive of wins, three times more highly correlated with wins than uh, pass rush was. Wow. That doesn't mean pass rush wasn't, um, mm-hmm. you know, isn't important. If we, for example, if we're trying to predict the spread of a game, um, passing success and passing efficiency is the most important thing. And then coverage comes second, and then pass rush shows up third. So it's an important thing. Um, but when we look at it, you know, just from a very high level, um, you know, coverage is just more highly correlated with wins. And then if you try and start to sort of predict the variance in games, coverage, again, is a fair bit more explanatory, um, you know, predicting things forward than pass rush is. And, um, you know, I, I think even looking at it from a play-by-play standpoint, you know, if we just split it out by PFF grade, we see that at every level, even at the expected level, uh, a pass rush expected play is more valuable for the defense than an expected play. I'm sorry, uh, a coverage uh, play that is expected is more valuable for the defense than sort of the expected pass rush play. Is, um, George, real is quick, it, is, that, is, is that because you just don't get pass rush on as many possessions as you have coverage affect that play? Because, you know, if you have a great game, you, you, you sack a quarterback four or five times, he throws at 40. So you look at a, a, a 10% sack rate, but coverage affects every play. Is it the cumulative value of the coverage that makes it that much more important? I think that's a part of it, right? So in terms of predicting wins, for example, or looking at how, you know, how successful a team is in a, is in a certain game, I think that is, you know, that's obviously huge. I think on a per play level, um, you know, even if you make say a good play, let's say that the, you know, the, the edge rusher beats his guy and gets a pressure. Right. Um, so just because you get pressure, it doesn't mean you sack the quarterback, right? Now, obviously, sacks are super valuable, and pressure is valuable too, but um, it's not all of a sudden killing the play. Whereas if a coverage defender, you know, if you have five coverage defenders out there and they're all in tight coverage. That, that gives them an opportunity to make a play on the ball. When they make a play on the ball, it's an incompletion, right? There's no gain. So there's sort of that, you know, there's more of a possibility for a successful play even with pressure. Um, you know, you, you have quarterbacks now, you know, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, Cam Newton, all these guys who, you know, they can evade pressure and, they'll, you know, with their feet they can go, you know, pick up a bunch of yardage. You know, Aaron Rodgers can do that too. Um, so I think that plays, that plays a role as well. And then I think – I think there's also, you know, in the NFL today, there's everyone's trying to throw quickly. And you, you know, as a pass rusher, it takes you a little bit of time to get to the quarterback. Right. You know, and so if you're throwing the ball in two seconds, yeah. what, what is the mitigating factor there, right? What allows me to throw the ball in two seconds? Well, if the coverage allows, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that plays a component as well. Um, we, looked, we looked at this uh, over the past two years. We've been tracking whether a throw is made in rhythm. We have a guy named Zach Robinson, played, played quarterback for, uh, for Oklahoma State and, and was with the Patriots for a little bit. And this is one of the things that he's been really keen on is looking at when the quarterback hits his back foot, is he able to get rid of the ball, right? And it turns out that you can, so if you're in rhythm and you're under pressure, so think about that, you know, the guy's in your face, but you're able to get the ball out when that back foot hits. Yeah. Success is actually higher in that situation than if you're not under pressure but unable to throw in rhythm. And I think that speaks to the sort of idea that, look, if I must choose one, 
I'll choose coverage. They're both obviously important, but I think coverage just sort of reigns a little bit supreme in this case. And, and I think that's something you saw in the Super Bowl with the Eagles. Great, you can rush the quarterback. If Tom Brady's getting rid of it in the second and a half, yeah. what's the difference? And he threw for 500 <clears throat> yards. A uh, couple other really kind of big picture stuff. Turnovers slash takeaways. We all know. Number uh, one statistic it, in football. It's the most predictive yeah. thing that determines if a team wins or loses a game. And I know I, I'm not going to tell you which, which side of the ledger I stand here, uh, but I, I feel pretty confident about it. I'm curious to see if I'm right. Are turnovers, generally speaking, more the result of the offensive team making a mistake or the mm. defensive team making a play? <clears throat> Oh wow, that that was not what I was expecting you to go with that question. Yeah, that, but we're not really done yet. Interesting. <laughs> we're that's not done really yet. Interesting. George. So, I, you know, I um, that is a really I would I'm going to look into that because I think we do have a way to sort of tease that out, right? That's is a it hard more one. the result of a, it, you know, and I think we can I think we can start to get at it by saying are more turnovers, you know, necessary? Are they more Worst. so caused by? Negative plays by the offense, you know, a, a negatively graded play yeah. by the offense or a positively graded play by the defense Correct. I think would be a good place yeah. to start. Yeah. But the, I, think the, I think the big thing with turnovers, and, you know, this is why a passer rating is such a sort of bad statistic, is that turnovers are, they may predict wins really well, but your ability to predict turnovers is not going to be very good, right? It's an incredibly unstable thing from game to game you and know, from season to season. You know, George, it's funny you say that, though, but there are some teams like the Chiefs that have been pretty consistent in their turnover ratio over the last three or four years. Right, but so is that because, you know, it, so are they demonstrating, what are the underlying things then that are demonstrating, you know, their ability to get turnovers? Yeah, I right? don't know. Or maybe I don't know. they've just been, have they been, you know, so have they just been sort of lucky with fumble recoveries you know, if you look at touched or uh, look at interceptions, for example, it's one of the least stable things that quarterbacks do is the number of interceptions they have in a season. The, the nice thing about what we do at PFF is that we grade all of the throws. So if a if a quarterback makes a terrible throw into you know a linebacker that's just sitting there and it hits the linebacker's helmet and he drops it, that gets graded negatively as a turnover-worthy play. And we found that turnover-worthy play percentage, which includes fumbles, right? So if you fumble the ball and your offensive lineman happens to sit on it, that doesn't mean that the quarterback should get away scot-free, right? He he fumbled the ball. That's a bad play. That is significantly more stable from season to season. So when we're building our quarterback metrics, for example, when we're looking at tiers of quarterbacks, when we're trying to project them forward, we use turnover-worthy play percentage in lieu of interception percentage or fumble recovery percentage or whatever it would be, um, and that we've seen to you know, get much better results doing that. So in short, you haven't found anything in the numbers where you can say, well, if Team A can do A, B, and C and how we grade or how they play, that has a better chance of forcing turnovers, for example. You think a lot of it really is random. I think certainly the number of turnovers you have is pretty darn random. Um, and I think, you know, you'll probably find that better football players have a, you know, have a higher impact on turnovers than, or at least turnover opportunities than bad football players. Right. Um, but so much of what happens after they make the play is random. Um, and I think that's just something that, that, you know, is a fact. Now, where, where did you think I was going to go with that turnover question, George? I, I thought you were going to ask whether or not that's something we can rely on game to game or season to season. That's and, where I thought you were going. And, and, your, and your answer would be no, correct? 
Yeah, I, I would I would always try to look at the try and, and value the process that led to it um, and see if I can quantify that before looking at the outcome. I think that in general something that look if I want to be predictive, you know, if I want to predict sacks, for example, season to season, me just taking their sack total and trying to, you know, project it forward is is almost, you know, worthless. But if I take a bigger sample size of the number of times that, for example, a rusher beat his, uh, you know, the, the pass blocker in front of him, that is far more predictive of how many sacks he'll have going forward. So, you know, when we want to predict, for example, how many turnovers a, a quarterback will have, we'll use his turnover-worthy play rate because that is indicative more of the process Got than it. the outcome. Um, real quickly, and I know we're running out of time, just the, the whole turnover thing, when Coach Coughlin was with the Giants, we every Friday we had like a meeting that did a lot of these analytic stuff. And his number one thing was always when you're on the road and you have more than two turnovers, you have a tw- X percent of chance of winning the game. And I remember sitting on the bench sometimes, we would turn the ball over on the road twice in the first half going, we're never going to win this game <laughs> <laughs> because of the statistics, right? But it just And it doesn't have to be a long answer, George. Do you find that that statistic in football is as key as it is that the coaches are trying to portray it to the players? Like, listen, you win the turnover battle, you're going to win the game 40% of the time. I just threw that Look, out. We've all right. been, you know, we have all been in that competitive situation, right? And I think there's a huge difference between someone's trying to predict the outcome of the game, you know, from, you know, wherever we're sitting right now. And there's a big difference between that and then the player's actually playing in the game right? right so if you're if your players go in there knowing how valuable turnovers are that's fantastic absolutely right i i certainly want my players now as long as it doesn't you know as, as long as we don't see that you know more busted coverages or more missed tackles i mean that's something that i think is worth thinking about as sort of the you know the bad side of those things but there's nothing wrong in my opinion with you know telling players how valuable making certain plays are I would just want to be real with them and say, look, you can still make great plays without turning the ball over, right? Let's also make sure we, we limit the big plays. We just talked about how important those are as well. So, uh, you know, it's not predictive, obviously, because I, it's hard for me to tell whether a guy's going to, you know, get whether oh, they're yeah. going to force two turnovers or not. But, uh, look, you, you've got to motivate guys to do things that are valuable, certainly. Well, have you have you found that the team that you know in, just over the course of your studies and stuff that the turnover battle, whoever wins the turnover battle, typically wins the game outright without anything else? I mean, it's an easy it's an easy question, but it's probably not easy to answer. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, your colleague is right that it is one of the most predictive things of of winning a football game. But I'll remind you that so is the number of kneel downs that a team takes. <laughs> so you know there. There are things there are things that are descriptive of what happened in the game, and there are things that are predictive, right? And right. so okay. certainly the turnover battle is descriptive, right? It tells you a heck of a lot about what happened in the game. Sure. But me trying to then spin that forward, look, Eli could throw four interceptions in a game. And not that, one of them could be his fault. Exactly. Right. right. Yep. So me going forward the next week and saying, oh, Eli was terrible last week, that's not the right way to then project things forward. And I think that's the key distinction that honestly, uh, that, that is about 95% of the boneheaded takes that you see, uh, you know, throughout, you know, TV, radio, written word, whatever it is, most of them are, are dealing with that issue. Okay, George, I know we're at one o'clock. I got a few more rapid fire questions for you. If you have like five more minutes cool. for us real quick. Um, sure. And I imagine what you just talked about descriptive stats rather than predictive stats 
That's why when you look at the leaderboard and you see, you know, six all six teams that led the league in rushing were also playoff teams, they're up there because they're in the lead and they're killing the clock. And that's why their rushing yards are as high as they are. Is that kind of where you guys are coming from, from a rushing perspective with those, you know, types of relationships between wins and rushing yards that teams might have? Yep, that's exactly it, right? Okay. So a team, you know, is a team winning because they're running? Or are they running because they're winning? And I think uh, it's certainly one side of that coin for sure. Got it. What I think running back is going to be your answer on offense. What positions um, have the least amount of impact on winning on the offensive and defensive sides of the ball? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, So on the offensive side of the ball, I think it's um, yeah. I think you could make a case for the running back. I also think interior linemen have shown to be a little less uh, important. Um, so I think those are the two I'd go with, basically because they impact the passing game the least. And when I look at, if I just look at strength of team, you know, so if I just boil it down to how, uh, what's your EPA per play? You know, generally your your increase uh, of expected points that you gain per play. How strong are you in passing, running? Um, and special teams on the offensive side, and then passing defense, run defense, and special teams on the defensive side. Passing is by far on both sides of the ball the most important. Its coefficient, if I just run a linear model, is twice that of anything else. And then you'll be you'll like to hear this: running and special teams are about equal. Well, um, I should have got paid. I should have got paid seven million dollars a year, like <laughs> running back then. <laughs> and I guess, Absolutely. And, 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 and then from the def- defensive side, I'll quickly say I think interior guys that um, you know they're that where they kind of stuff the you know run as their primary thing. Damon Harrison is a huge outlier. He's valuable, and it takes so he has to be yeah. great to be valuable. And he is such a hard position. And he is. He's such yeah, an outlier, he though. He's so far ahead of anybody else. And uh, George, here's yeah. I, I, I want to make sure I, I phrase this properly. How about like the difference between a really a good safety versus a below average safety, or a good linebacker versus a below average linebacker? Uh, obviously, you're going to see a big impact. You have a corner that you know kind of scales up and down, but it. Is it going to kill your team having a you know a below average safety or linebacker on the field as much as it will say at another position? You know what I mean? Or a cornerback? Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. I'm of the mind that you know your goal is to beat the best teams out there, and I think the best teams isolate your weakness. So, good point. In my mind, having having a guy in coverage that is a weakness that that's why I think coverage is so important. That's why I'm drafting so many corners. I'm drafting linebackers that can cover safeties that can cover the slot. Because when I play Tom Brady, if I want to win a Super Bowl, i got to go through Tom Brady, and I have to trot a linebacker out there who can't cover anybody, they're going to torch me on that all game. So I think, um, I think the spread is pretty big when you face the top teams in the NFL. I'm going to go one, one college question. Which positions yeah. are most difficult to predict um, in terms of a player's ability to carry his college production and general play um, – ability to the pro level this is a great question and this speaks to the coverage uh versus pass rush thing because in general whether you're at looking nfl season to season or college to pro coverage is not very stable um in other words you know just because a guy is good one year i'm not as confident he'll be good the next year whereas we've seen that pass rush 
and run defense at the college level, and so we're using the PFF grades to measure production, is tremendously stable from college to pro. And mm-hmm. so I am taking, I, you know, you see guys like Aaron Donald, who's a great example of that. You know, he was tremendous production-wise in college and has been at the pro level. Um, and so what I'm, I'm using that to inform my team building, right? I'm more confident that the one or two guys I pick as pass rushers or run defenders are going to be good. And then I'm taking as many, many lottery tickets on cornerbacks and, you know, coverage guys as I can. And I think the same is kind of true with, uh, with quarterbacks as well. We just have a small sample size of those. And so that's, that's an area where obviously there's a lot of leverage to, to get better at that quickly. And I think we are, we're working really hard to get better at, um, you know, predicting quarterback play from college. So the defensive end is your, is your go-to guy. There's, that's the one, the one position that you're not going to see that much of a drop-off, especially from coming from the bigger, bigger conferences. You know, like next year, it's, it's defensive end city next yeah, absolutely, year. Absolutely. So, yeah. and then the QBs, like the small sample size, you know, to me, QB would be the hardest one to, to be able to, to predict even though they drafted so many of them in the first round this year. But, you know, you look at all these first-round draft picks that come out as quarterback, they don't all make them. They don't make it very often. And I think a huge component of that is that because there's so little information on the college side of things, um, and, and we've just started ramping up our own data collection process to get better at this, you see so much of quarterback, you know, drafting, you know, being drafted high is based on, you know, sort of projection, right? Josh sure. Allen is a great example of that, right? He, he just looked like he could potentially be great. He had all the tools, right? Um, and that's because people don't feel as confident in measuring how well a guy performed truly at the college level. And we're doing, you know, there's a lot of things we're working on. One of them is, is isolating NFL throws. These are the throws mm. that, you know, based on separation, yeah. based on depth relative to the line to gain, based on the type of route and the situation, have shown to be separators of quarterbacks at the NFL level. And then because we have that same data at the college level, we can look at those same subset of throws at the college level. So we saw a guy like Pat Mahomes didn't make a ton of NFL throws. He had a lot of, you know, Texas Tech had a lot of weird, you know, scheme throws, right? But when he threw those, he was very good. Baker Mayfield, exact same way. Had a lot of great scheme stuff, but he was still great when it came to making NFL throws. So I think we're getting better but there's, it's, it's, a, it's a very steep mountain to climb for sure. Here's an indirectly but directly Eric Flowers-related question. <laughs> Is there any difference in the importance between the left tackle and a right tackle on an offensive line? And should there be any differentiation in the skill set necessary to play right tackle and left tackle in the modern-day NFL? And will Eric Flowers be much better this year? Tell us, George. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can, I can tell you this. If he is not much better this year, it will be just as detrimental uh, to the team as it would be from the left side. We have seen there is very little. I mean, there is still a, a little uh, difference in terms of the value from the left tackle and the right tackle position, but it's very minimal. Both tackle positions kill you if they're bad, and that's the big yeah, thing, that, that's, that's the big true. takeaway that we've come away with. Going from an amazing left tackle or, or right tackle to an average one isn't a big deal. It's going from, you know, average to detrimental that kills you, and I think that makes sense for anyone that's watched the game of football. But what the, there's an inefficiency here, which is I think that left tackles, you know, if you look at it in terms of salary, there's 12 guys that make I think 10 million plus per year at left tackle, and there's one guy that makes 10 plus million per year at right tackle. So. Um, I think there's a huge inefficiency to be had there. I'm probably looking to draft guys 
you, know, you won't like to hear this, but I'm looking to draft guys to play left tackle, and I'd be more willing to sign a guy to play right tackle because I think it would save me a little money. All right, George, final question, because if I didn't ask it, Paul Dottino, who's one of our other hosts, would hunt <laughs> me down and, and, and murder me. Um, why have you guys so consistently – the last four or five years graded Eli Manning as poorly as you have. I think you have him ranked as the 21st or 22nd ranked quarterback, and I know it drives Paul off the wall, and I told him I'd ask you the question, so I'm asking you the question. Well, some of the things he's already said, yeah. he's already, we, we can come to the, the uh, distinction, right? I mean, big-time throws, right? Yeah, you're, you're preaching my language. I mean, look, in 11 and 12, he was a top-10 graded guy, and I think if you go back and watch those seasons, you'll sort of notice why. From that point on, he's been basically in the 20s. He was 28th last year. And if you look at exactly what we were talking about before, um, you know, his ability to throw the ball and make those big-time throws was 34th out of 41 last year. He was 27th out of 41 in limiting turnover-worthy plays, which is you know, not what you expect from a guy that's not pushing the ball downfield a right. ton. And his average depth of target was you know, just in the seventh. So um, I think you know, for Eli, certainly last year, you can, you can look at the supporting cast and you can say, okay, the supporting cast was awful, right? I, right. I don't think there's any doubt there. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, even if you take sort of the last four years kind of together, um, you know, in, in 2014, he was 35th in big-time throw rate. In 2015, he was 27th. 2016, he was 25th. Um, if you take all four years together, he's 24th in terms of grade from a clean pocket. So even if you're taking away the times he was under pressure and – Look, what we found, this is a cool little nugget here, is that performance from a clean pocket is generally way more, it's way more stable season to season. So if a guy has an outlier season in pressure, you know, under pressure, whether it be bad or good, we kind of like to look at the clean pocket stuff. And, yeah. you know, Eli Manning's been a mid-20s guy from the clean pocket for four seasons. So, um, you know, he's not, he's not terrible, but he's not really in the top half of quarterbacks at this point. One quick follow-up on that, George, and I think one thing that's frustrated Giant fans about the offense that they kind of put Eli in over the last four years is that they didn't really give him the opportunity to get the ball down the field as much like they did under Kevin Gilbride in 11 and 12 and years before that. And frankly, he was always a great deep passer down the middle of the field in those really good years. So I guess my question when you say his big-time throw rate is down, is that his success rate on those throws or simply the number of those throws that he's attempting? if you know kind of where I'm going with this. Yep. No, it's all based on how good the throw is, totally agnostic of what type of play is made on the other side of things. So if, it, you know, if his players are dropping passes left and right, he's not getting dinged for those. And he has been unlucky. Look, he had 43 drop passes last season, which was the most he's had over the past four seasons. Um, so I, I, think there's, I think Eli falls into, and, and this is one of the things we do with quarterback tiers, is we, we cluster them into similar groups. And what we've seen is this sort of pattern where the tier one guys, are, they can do it regardless of who you put around them. But once you get into tier three and four, and Eli Manning was a, was a, was a cluster four guy last season, um, which means he was sort of a more safe second-tier quarterback, those guys are more dependent on the players around them. So... You know, Eli could certainly have a good season if everything falls in the line around him. Um, But, you know, it's not a guy that if things are kind of falling apart, he's going to pick them up. Um, and I think that's I think that's a pretty fair way of putting where he's at right now. More specifically on the big time throw stat, was it an issue of him not throwing enough of those in terms of volume 
or was it his success rate on the ones he did throw that killed him? Yeah, so the, the big time throw rate is only um, you know out of it's the 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 um, it's divided out of the number of total passes that a guy makes, right? right. So obviously not giving him as many opportunities. And I uh, yeah. let me look here. I can't remember exactly what his um, deep pass rate was. Let's see, it was really low last season. Yep. So he only oh, threw ten and a half percent of his ten and a half percent of his passes went twenty plus yards downfield. That's that's not great. I think maybe only Dak was in the single digits last year. So that's a huge component of it. They're not running play action a ton. He's been under 20% uh, each of the past three seasons of play action. Uh, it's not all on Eli, right? We, look at what Sean McVay did with Jared Goff. Yeah. Right? Jared Goff was yeah. unspectacular you know, from a grading standpoint, from an accuracy standpoint, but the guy had more open throws than anyone else. He was throwing off a play action to guys running scot-free over the middle of the field. <laughs> that makes uh, a quarterback feel a lot better, play a lot better, and the team obviously be a lot more successful. So just because you know Eli hasn't performed great doesn't mean it's necessarily all his fault. Your your you know your performance is obviously a function of your circumstance to a certain extent. Sure. George, we really appreciate the time. Uh, I definitely want to do this again down the road. Um, enjoy the season. We'll be in touch. I might have to send you some extra follow-up questions over the course of the year if things pop into my head, if you don't mind. And uh, we really appreciate the information and the education for the Giant fans. Yeah, out thank there. you, George. It was really great. No. This was awesome. I'd be happy to be on again. And if you guys, in the meantime, want to hear more of our stuff, the PFF Forecast, uh, which is our analytics podcast, will keep you guys going until we meet again. Very good. Absolutely. George, great stuff. Thanks so much. Enjoy your summer. Thanks, George. Thanks, guys. Have a great one. You're you welcome. too. Thank you. George Shahrui. And I think I got it. I, I think Close I nailed enough, that one pretty he said. good. I think I nailed that one from Pro Football Focus, Shahrui. talking some football analytics. So did you learn something, Jeff? Oh, it's, it, it's actually – you could sit here and talk this for hours. Well, I, I went 15 um, minutes longer than I should have yeah, but because just, I had too I, many I hope, questions to I get to. I hope that, you know, the, the listeners and, and everybody got as much out of yeah. as I did because it's really interesting the way that – you could see how analytics play a big part in how to predict games. And by the way, when he explains how they get there, yeah. it really does make sense. It's really amazing. And I would imagine that, you know, it, it, listen, with, with the way that football is and with gambling and this, all this stuff, you could just see how all of this stuff comes into effect with how, how, how the game is watched and how it's played. Because I will tell you, uh, if you're not a team that's looking at this type of analytical uh, data, you got something wrong. You got to. This is. This can. Not to say that you have to game plan around every 100 percent of it, but it could be a tipping point. That hey, you know why is this team so good on third down? It might not be the Bible, but it's certainly something you need to look at. Exactly. So it's very. It's right. a very interesting topic and one that we'll talk more about. And uh, yeah, great, great guest today. Really good. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. All right, everybody. Remember, no show on Friday, which is tomorrow. No shows the week of the Fourth of July. So we'll be back. On the Monday after the 4th of July, which is July 9th, and we'll continue our preview matchup series. That day, I believe we have the Cowboys and the Texans. We do our little Texas two-step <laughs> with Paul Dettino and I. Uh, enjoy the next uh, 10 days or so. Yeah, happy 4th Happy of July. Independence Day. <laughs> Be safe, and we'll see you on July 9th. Have a great day, everybody.